Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 8.4, the fourth episode in our series on Grand Canyon National Park. In this episode, Brian speaks with Morgan Grasser McGregor, interpretive park ranger specializing in Native American history at Grand Canyon National Park. Be sure to listen to our next episode in two weeks with Morgan's colleague, Perry Spreiser. She will talk about modern history of the Grand Canyon and will share some fun anecdotes about early explorers and the creation of the park. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Grand Canyon National Park. I'm with Morgan Gresser-McGregor, an interpretive park ranger. Morgan began his career with the National Park Service in 2014 at Colorado National Monument as a Spanish-language park ranger. Uh, Morgan moved on from there to Yellowstone in 2016, and finally now he's at the Grand Canyon at Desert View, and we'll get into that in a little bit, in 2018. Morgan, thanks for uh, being on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so today's topic is the Native American peoples that uh, have been and still are around Grand Canyon National Park. And just when we visited, our opinion was uh, seeing the Grand Canyon without having that Native American context uh, was really, one would be remiss in not having that context. And so we were really glad we got a little bit of it, and it just made us want to learn more. So we're very, very happy to have you. I guess I'll just start. What are the tribes that are around the Grand Canyon right now, and where exactly are they located? Because obviously the Grand Canyon is pretty vast. So where are they located around the canyon? Yeah, so we have 11 associated tribes with the Grand Canyon. It's always a little difficult to remember uh, every one of them, but for the most part, we have Tupai, Hopi, uh, the Diné, or Navajo, the Wallapai, and several bands of Paiute, and bands of uh, Apache as well. So the reservations closest to the park would be Navajo Reservation, and the Havasupai, and the Wallapai. Uh, the Paiute also have uh, a reservation on the north side of the canyon, uh, kind of located in the Arizona Strip. And if you're not part of that nation, such as our family, can you visit the reservations? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, every reservation has their own kind of rules and etiquette. But just some general rules. Remember that you're you're basically a guest in someone's land, so you just want to be as respectful as possible, especially when taking photos. Some places require a permit for you to take photos, but like I said, they're all uh, kind of different. But it's always best to err on the side of caution. But yeah, absolutely, you should definitely uh, go visit the reservations if you are interested in Native culture. They also, you know, tourism is a, a very important lifeline for these communities as well. So it's a great way to support Native people as well. So two things there. One, and then then tourism is quite welcome. And, and two, and I'm glad, Morgan, you touched on this, is etiquette. I was leading you down this path because uh, where we are here on Long Island, we're not far from the um, 
Shinnecock Nation, and actually I went to, I, I grew up here and I went to school with some members of the uh, Shinnecock Nation, so I know that there's, uh, there's etiquette when you're on the reservation, and you know, don't wear your cut-off jeans and, and dirty t-shirt when you're visiting, you know, have, have, I think you said, err on the side of being a little bit conservative in your, in your dress and taking photos, and I think that's important to pick out, so I, I'm glad you mentioned that, but can you talk a little bit about the tourist experience? So obviously, you're going to hit the Grand Canyon for the views and maybe some hikes and maybe down to Phantom Ranch, all that good stuff. How would you incorporate a Native American context to your trip, uh, either visiting a reservation or within the national park boundaries itself? Yeah, so as far as those resources go within Grand Canyon, you've got a lot of options. Grand Canyon is known for its geology, but it also has a very very rich history of Native peoples going back 13,000 years. So here at Desert View, this is, that's one of our main focuses, is providing that interface with visitors, visiting the Desert View Watchtower and visiting with some cultural demonstrators that we uh, invite out to Desert View. They come out and practice their craft. Uh, they have things for sale, and they're always more than happy to discuss their culture and their personal truth, especially concerning things. But apart from that, we, we also have uh, other native buildings. I mean, we've got the Tucson ruins that are just three miles uh, to the west of Desert View. Uh, and we have different displays in that museum of some of the associated tribes as well. We actually, and we highly recommend this, we did the Tucson ruin and museum and we actually did the ranger walk which we highly recommend because that certainly clicked into place the grand canyon and how native peoples thousands of years ago were surviving at the edge of the grand canyon and how they how they worked with the grand canyon in so many ways so that certainly clicked everything into place for us so i I, i'm with you and i i highly recommend it that's a nice hidden jewel of an annex to uh, grand canyon the actual canyon itself yeah absolutely and even though only about 5% of the park has been surveyed for archaeological sites, there are over 4,000 known sites within the park. So, you know, you can also get out and just explore the park. Of course, if you are doing that, it's always very important to remember that these are archaeological sites and they are protected. So it's important to remember to do your part and leave any artifacts that you see, uh, where they are. Leave them in context. And there are also sites that you can see. One of the easiest sites to get to is just on Bright Angel Trail. Mm-hmm. So if you keep an eye out after the after you go through the tunnel and kind of look up to the left right there on the canyon wall are some beautiful uh, ancient pictographs there of different animals. Yeah, we, we saw those. We missed it on the way down, but on the way back up, we made sure to, that we locked eyes on it. We saw that. Are there any other places you can recommend where we would look for uh, petroglyphs or pictographs, or do you all kind of keep that quiet because you don't want anyone disturbing that? How do you all in your park management um, think about that? Yeah, so uh, yes and no. We do have sites like the Tucson Ruins and the Bright Angel pictographs. Also, there are ruins over on the Walhalla Plateau. And those are all places where you can go. We'll give you directions. We'll tell you exactly how to get there. 
There are other places that you would have to ask where that specific place is, asking for it by name. And then we can direct you to that, but we wouldn't be able to just tell you the name and how to get there because uh-huh. it's a little more, would be like a class two site. The class three sites, however, we are not allowed to disclose if we even know ourselves where they are. We're not allowed to disclose where those are because that is the best way to protect them, unfortunately. When people tend to visit archaeological sites in great numbers, you get negative consequences uh, like vandalism, people taking artifacts like potsherds and uh, whatever they find. And uh, unfortunately, that is that is the reality. So the best way to protect some of these sites to just leave them as they are. So that's interesting. When we did our Zion series, we learned that in the backcountry, National Park Service, they know where all the native indigenous uh, artifacts are. They will not tell you. Whereas it seems like it's a little bit more layered in Grand Canyon, where for some at least, if I come prepared and know the name, then you'll disclose where it is, which I guess shows that if I've taken the time to look it up and chances are I'm going to be respectful and dutiful about respecting where it is. And then there are somewhere just like Zion, you know, you're not going to tell me no matter what. So that's um, that's a pretty interesting layer and in policy that you have. Um, and it also hints that there's a lot out there probably that you're you're probably worried about that you want to you want to maintain that you have di- if you have different levels. So it shows you just how rich, um, rich the tapestry of native indigenous people have been over the last several thousand years in Grand Canyon. Yeah. Absolutely. Which leads me to my next question is, what is that tapestry? So we have the current, you know, you mentioned the Navajo and the Paiutes and the Hopi and the Havasupai um, and, and, and others up to 11 tribes. Just in a thumbnail sketch, and I know this is really complicated history, but what does that look like? When did humans first reach the canyon as far as we know? And how exactly did they interact with the canyon? Did they look at it as a sacred place? Did they look at it as just a big hole in the ground that's an obstacle for getting to the other side of the hole? Generally speaking, and I know this is probably an impossible question, but generally speaking, how do they view the canyon? The answers to those questions are pretty varied. What we can say for sure is that either living or moving through Grand Canyon, over, and that's clear because of the Everett Clovis point, specifically Folsom points that are of Paleo-Indian culture. Uh, and those people were here hunting the large Pleistocene megafauna, like giant things like that. But like I said, they weren't, uh, they probably were not living in Grand Canyon because they were uh, nomadic people. So they were definitely hard to say exactly what they thought about the Grand Canyon, uh, but it's, it's almost certain that they uh, saw it as an obstacle of some sort. But after them, you know, uh, the Pleistocene megafauna died out towards the end, and then you saw the archaic. Again, it was very long ago, so the uh, evidence of, that they left us is, but they did leave evidence of Pat Lattle, as well as uh, some, that is some of the oldest, the rise of the ancestral Puebloans and their use mm-hmm. of the Grand Canyon. The ancestral Puebloans were more, they really took agriculture, and that was their main form of food. Uh, because they did live here more or less in the same place year-round. The only way to do that in this kind of unforgiving landscape was while also hunting and gathering and uh, storing that. A great representation of that, again, is Tucson Ruin. 
about an 800-year-old ruin, uh, small community where you can see the different rooms and the places where they stored grains and then uh, even more of the artifacts that have been. After that, kind of led to the more historic tribes, that the 11 associated tribes. And their views of the canyon are quite varied. So some imagine. of them, yeah, some of them, Puebloans, the Hopi and the Zuni, um, their origin place is the canyon. Um, the Walpi believe the same thing. Uh, so the canyon is a very sacred place. It remains very sacred and central to their identity. Mm. So with that, how does the NPS interact with the tribes to, you know, show that proper respect, but also, you know, it's a park and visitor, as you know, millions of visitors are, are coming every day. How do you strike that balance? It's been evolving. You know, ever since the National Park Service came an agency and began overseeing the National Park, you know, visitors' use of those areas and balancing that is balancing the enjoyment of the visitors, protection and the preservation of those areas has always been evolving paradigm. Uh, and it's the same with Native tribes. When Grand Canyon was first established, there were still Native peoples living in the park. Uh, Havasupai were still farming down at Indian Gardens along the Bright Angel Trail. Oh, wow. Yeah, eventually they were uh, forced out, forced onto reservations. And that was the story with uh, all of the tribes associated with Grand Canyon. But now, of course, we do our best to to honor their legacy and how it connects to the canyon. There's a few ways that we do that. We work with the uh, intertribal work group. And so those are representatives from the different tribes who provide really important guidance for us as we move forward on certain projects that uh, involve the native tribes. Apart from that, here at Desert View, like I said, we're, we definitely are focused on the tribe with our watchtower being designed after ancestral Puebloan architecture and all of the arts, the original Hopi art, as well as uh, different petroglyphs and things that have been taken from different areas. We really focus on the Native people's connection to the land and try to interpret that for the visitors here at Desert. Uh, and again, we do that also by uh, inviting people artisans and craftsmen from those native tribes to come and not only sell their wares, but demonstrate and talk to the visitors, explain uh, things about themselves and their culture and their personal truth when it comes to grant. And in there, you answered a question I was going to ask, is how does each individual tribe interact with one another? But it sounds like there's an intertribe council that gets together to at least have one body to interact with the uh, with the park. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, it, uh, it was not always like that. You know, uh, hundreds of years ago, the tribe, there's no set boundaries, right? They didn't have uh, the lines like we have with state lines and things like that. With the tribe's population and power constantly ebbing and flowing, uh, so did their, their borders. And of course, their were always uh, raids between tribes. When the Navajo came in fairly recently in the grand scheme of things, um, they they encountered the Hopi, who were mainly agriculturalists, arid farmers, and you know they would raid the Hopi from time to time. And uh, I'm sure it was vice versa. The Wallapai would 
afraid to have a stew pie. Uh, and it was just kind of a back and forth thing. Uh, these the relationships between the tribes were uh, pretty dynamic. And then, uh, of course, today, uh, things are much different. We live in a much different world. And uh, cooperation between the tribes uh, really benefits all of them. Right. And were the Apache the last the last tribe to come? Because I know the, the Apache have a legacy of, of raiding as well. Were they the one that the last ones to, to kind of make it to the vicinity of the canyon? Uh, I'm not really sure as far as the timeline uh, with the Apache. Uh, the Navajo, however, are fairly recent arrivals. They, we don't, the only reason that we uh, know that is because they speak an Athabascan dialect. Uh, Athabascans are uh, from Alaska. And uh, yeah, so they came to the Southwest relatively recently, whereas the Hopi are uh, descendants of the ancestral Puebloans. Oh, that's interesting. Who, yeah, so that's that's why we call them the ancestral Puebloans, because they are the ancestors of today's Puebloan tribe, uh, which, of which the Hopi, the Zuni, uh, there's over 20 different uh, modern Pueblo tribes today. And and not to give a plug for another park here, but when you're talking about ancestral Puebloans, is, is, would you see that at Mesa Verde National Park or Montezuma National Monument? Uh, is that kind of the same ancestral Puebloans that we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the ancestral Puebloans had a pretty wide time frame uh, when they inhabited the Four Corners area. But Mesa Verde, absolutely. Uh, Chaco Canyon. There's lots of different uh, ancestral Puebloan sites here in the Four Corners area and all over the Colorado Plateau, really. Uh, and what makes them uh, such a great culture to kind of go visit is because they have these ruins, these elaborate towers, multiple rooms, uh, central plazas. It's uh, their architecture that has remained uh, to this day is pretty astounding. Uh, yeah, we're we're uh, as you can tell, we're park junkies. So on our way out from Grand Canyon, we stopped at Montezuma uh, National Monument, and it it, uh, it is fairly mind blowing when you see that structure built into the side of a cliff. How intricate it was, and how complicated that society was. It is a uh, it is certainly a, a nice. It is certainly a contrast when you have more nomadic people. When you you know you're speaking of the Apache, more nomadic people, and and uh, more uh, people who range more when more the uh, agricultural base like the Puebloans. It's a it's a great education, and again, clicks into pace a lot of the things you see at Tucson, and then clicks into place with the actual canyon itself and that entire interplay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a. I have quite the interest in Native peoples myself, obviously, and yeah, it's it's really astounding to imagine these ancient civilizations on the landscape that you're on today. Uh, you know, sometimes just picturing the Grand Canyon with campfire smoke curling up from the bottom uh, along the river with the communities down there, it's, uh, it's a really special image, and when you the more you learn about these native cultures, the more the more interesting, the more interested you are. The more uh, you can really appreciate, and especially picturing them and how they interacted with the landscape is it's really important. I think, uh, especially whenever you're going to these national parks, to remember that these these places were discovered. 
discovered fairly recently. And, you know, I say discovered kind of in quotes because they've, they were never lost. You know, they've had people living there for, you know, in Grand Canyon, 13,000 years. So just remembering that these places are people's homeland, their church, these are sacred places to these people. And so it's kind of humbling in that respect. And it also brings about a kind of a reverence for the National Park, which I'm sure you can appreciate. We, we certainly do. And I realize we're bearing the lead here. Is there a, and I know we can't go through all 11 um, in the interest of time, but it's a particular myth in, the, in their mythological structure of a, of a particular tribe about the Grand Canyon that, uh, that you want to share with us? Is there a, 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 the origin or what it means or, or why it's sacred? I think, I think we'd be fascinated to hear what that means. Yeah, sure. It's always a little tricky when you're uh, trying to explain someone else's story. You know what I mean? So, of course. I will say, as far as you know, sticking with the ancestral Puebloan and today's modern Puebloan, like the Hopi and the Zuni especially, the Hopi believe, well, all Puebloan tribes believe that their origin story is that their ancestors emerged from the underworld and came to this uh, surface world where we are today. And for the Hopi, that place, that actual, um, you know, something comparable to what we might consider, Christians might consider the Garden of Eden, um, is in the Grand Canyon. It's over uh, near the confluence of the Little Colorado. And for the Zuni, they have Riven Falls, which is the same place where, where their ancestors emerged. So these places, I mean, it's, it's kind of unbelievable for us. We, we can't really say, a lot of us, uh, you know, our origin is this exact place and that you can go visit. Um, so their story, their culture, their identity as a people is directly tied to the Grand Canyon. And not only that, but just directly to the south, you have the San Francisco Peaks where the Kachinas, the gods of the Pueblo, reside in the wintertime. So this is, you know, a very special place uh, to these people. I mean, not only for the resources and sustaining them when they were living here hundreds of years ago, uh, but even today, uh, connecting them spiritually to this place. I guess you're right. That shows you how sacred it is. I mean, I was just thinking as you were telling that story, Morgan, is it's as if we could point exactly to where, if you're a Westerner or, or coming from a Western tradition, where our Garden of Eden is, you can locate it, and then point in another direction and locate, you know, Mount, Olymp- Mount Olympus where the gods are. And that would, um, you know, in one spot, it's kind of amazing to think that that's one spot for a lot of these people. So even more reason why to contemplate those who came before us when you're visiting the Grand Canyon. Yeah, absolutely. And when I'm when I'm walking around the Tucson ruins, I imagine it, you know, deforested. So there wouldn't have been trees there because they would have been burning those trees for firewood things. So you can look south and they would have had a direct line of sight to the San Francisco peaks and then line of sight to the north would have been the Grand Canyon. So just just an unimaginably important and sacred place for them. Sacred and comforting. I I mean, I'm projecting, but I would I would imagine, right? So 
Um, well, look, that's a that's a great note to to end on here. We've I think we can all agree. I think you would agree too, Morgan. Is that uh, again going to the Grand Canyon and not thinking about and contemplating or um, those who came before us at a bare minimum, you're at a loss. And at a maximum, if you could visit Tucson, visit Desert View, or even visit one of the reservations. Uh, it sounds like you're in for a much richer experience when you're visiting the Grand Canyon. And uh, uh, I really thank you a lot for taking time out to talk a little bit about this great history. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Well, again, we're here with Morgan Gresser McGregor, an interpretive park ranger at Grand Canyon National Park. Uh, thanks again for taking time. All right. Great. It was, uh, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on Support the Show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We'd love to hear from you from the parks you're visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.